everyone. I'm Kenneth Dean, a Dean of Metal, along with my co-host, Chris Kay. Welcome to Debating Metal, the show where we discuss and debate our favorite forms of music, hard rock, and heavy metal. And this week, we're discussing another article from Revolver Magazine. It's been said that conflict is the driving force behind art in all its forms, literature, movies, etc. Money, egos, and politics often can be the destroyers of art, but in other instances, bad blood has helped create masterpieces through rivalries and outpouring of emotions, good and bad. From food fights to fisticuffs and mudslinging to murder, we present you with Heavy Metal's Biggest Feuds. So, in the little description we just had here, we said, from food fights to fisticuffs, from mudslinging to murder. Uh, so, there is one feud that kind of led to something that uh, is not such a good thing. Uh, and then the rest of it is mostly just... You mean food huh? fights, Yeah, right? the food fight. <laughs> <You> mean- <laughs> um, so, mo- most of it is mostly just, you know, words in the press. Um, you don't typically see people coming to fisticuffs, but it has come to blows for some people in the band. You know, I mean, Poison is notorious for fighting each other. Um, but this one, this does not include any poison. Um, we saw this article in Revolver Magazine uh, online, and I it, it got my attention right away, you know, these, you know, biggest feuds in metal. And so I thought, you know, Chris, you and I should discuss this because this is definitely something that um, in some cases you and I have had all differing opinions about in some of these feuds that we're going to talk about. And in others, most of it is just a matter of having a pure discussion. Um, so the one thing that I think you and I kind of have a difference of opinion on is the first one we're going to talk about, and that is Dave Mustaine versus Metallica. Um, we're going to get this over with right away because I know we want to move on to other <laughs> other feuds. And this one tends to be, you know, for me personal for you not so much well i mean we're we're a little bit on opposite sides of the coin on this one um you you are a diehard metallica fan i'm a fan i've been my whole life but i also tend to see both sides of the of the story and everyone involved was being children they were children you know they were kids at the time and so it, you know, you want to go over the story, I guess, well, a little I mean, bit. Long story short, I think most people, yeah, know. most people know. <laughs> if you don't know out there, you really have not seen some kind of monster. <laughs> True. Um, no, yeah. in reality, I mean, if 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 you don't know the history of Metallica and Dave Mustaine, um, Dave Mustaine joined Metallica in 1982. Um, and he was uh, subsequently fired in 1983, uh, right after the band had gotten to New York to record their first, uh, their debut album, Kill 'Em All. Um, he was he was presented with a bus ticket back to L.A. or San Francisco. I can't remember which one it was, um, and basically fired and said, "Go home." You're not in a band anymore. Um, throughout the years, there have been words said back and forth, and there have been different attitudes towards each other. And um, they finally reconciled, uh, I want to say, what is it, 2010, 11, something like that, during the Big Four. It was officially put to bed. I mean, they've, they've always said that it's never been that big of a feud, but there's always been 
you know, words thrown back and forth here and there, but they are back to being friends again. I don't know if they're ever going to be the tightest friends in the world, but they're back to being friends again. I mean, the the fact is that each member of the band has gone through their, their drug phases, alcoholic phases, or bands, I should say. Um, you know, they've been human. And the fact is they're, they have disagreeing personalities. And I don't think they're ever going to be best buds. But it was nice to see them on the, the Metallica anniversary concert where they brought all the former members back oh, yeah, in. That was pretty cool. And that that was cool, um, but yeah, that's that's one that's kind of been talked to death. There, people say, you know, Dave has always been chasing Metallica, this and that. And, you know, that may be true to some degree, and it's created some great albums. And it's up to you to decide which band you like better. I mean, so uh, to touch upon again, the, the 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 reason why he was fired was because he was an abusive and uh, angry drunk. Uh, while the other guys, admittedly, were drunks as well, um, were happy drunks and could control themselves in social situations as well as control themselves musically within the band, um, where where Dave um, apparently could not. And, you know, but look, for me, this feud has always been more about Dave harboring resentment. I think the guys in Metallica, Lars and James specifically, had moved on and had done their thing and you know, there was always that 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 point of jealousy, you know, the resentment that always built up with Dave and you know, it it created again, what we what, as we talked about in the opening, though that kind of drama creates masterpieces. And Megadeth is not the same band as Metallica. It's not the same style. No. And Megadeth has created their their little niche, and it's it, it's great. And it's when Dave gets outside of that little niche where things, for me, where he tries to follow others. And in, in my opinion, a lot of times it's him trying to follow in in Metallica's shadows that for him, things go different and wrong, you know, and I'm specifically talking about the music in the nineties, uh, that came out from Megadeth, um, you know, after everything after euthanasia and even euthanasia is an, is, is kind of like the, the same progression that Metallica made with load and reload, even though both countdown to extinction and, um, euthanasia came out, before load and reload so yeah i mean euthanasia is a heavier album than load yeah <laughs> yeah no definitely and and it, it's but it, it was still in terms of megadeth it was still accessible like countdown to extinction is heavier than stuff on load but it's still so much more accessible yeah you know symphony of destruction is not of it's a it's a very good metal song but it's not a thrashy song it's not you know holy wars no by any means you know it's not even the the first song on the album which was uh skin of my teeth is an awesome song right but countdown just like flips the script on it and it and it slows it down dramatically great song not you know 
we're, we're not we're not here to talk about songs per se, but that's how different they they went through the progression to get to be more ac- uh, accessible. And then euthanasia continued down that trail, and and that snowballed out of control with with it ending somewhere near risk, <laughs> which was terrible. Yeah, but I mean, just two years later, they came back with the world needs a hero. Yes, which we're going to discuss on another episode at a later date why someone thinks that's a really bad album but that's a that's a conversation for another time (laughs) (laughs) um you your your thing with with metallica megadeth is uh, is different than mine um quite honestly i've always thought that make that dave mustaine not purposely but subconsciously always stepped on his own toes trying to be better than Metallica and for whatever reason he couldn't get out of his own way even though he made great music that didn't nothing that had nothing to do with Metallica like like the whole thing of just like you know the black album comes out oh now I need to do something like that but I don't think that's always been something that's that's like okay the media will force this on people too like we've seen uh, specifically on blabbermouth uh, you know collecting articles from everywhere we see the media trying to create a rivalry between inflames and the halo effect oh i've been reading about that yeah and they're like no we're not we're not in a rivalry we're we are friends we we have family that hangs out together like we're not in a rivalry. You're trying to create something out of nothing. And so you can't tell me, you know, going back and watching all these interviews, when the 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 interviewers are asking questions that are fueling the fire, that, that a lot of that stuff wasn't caused by them. No, exactly. I mean, it, it, to me, a lot of it's all is all media-based. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. All the way back to, I believe it was 1985, when Metallica headlined a show on New Year's Eve and Megadeth was one of the opening acts. I mean, there wasn't anything really said back then about that. You know, it, shit, Megadeth was opening up for Metallica. Not, you know, I think it was Megadeth and Exodus and Metallica. Mm-hmm. So M- Megadeth was first because they had just started. You know, it, it was one of those things, you know, even Exodus today says that, that you know, that they, they kicked Metallica's ass, but Metallica was just, even then at that point already was on a different level, you know? So I, I don't know. Yes. To me, it was mostly media influence. And the problem is Mustaine is someone who you can, you can pick at real easy and he, it, it's automatically, you know, it just, it's diarrhea of the mouth where even though Lars is very diarrhea of the mouth, he always chose his words carefully and he never really talked a lot of shit about Dave. They always talked the same shit about Dave. They never talked about, oh, you know, you know, we screwed him. We did this, that, and the other thing like that. No, they just like, this is what happened. And they've maintained that story from, from beginning to end. But, you know, people always like to bring it up. And Dave is just going to turn around and say, yeah, well, you know, they, they stole my song. They fucked me out of credits. They, you know, they, they screwed me out of money, blah, blah. And it's always that bitter side from Dave come out every time that the media asks him the question. But lately it hasn't been that that way, which is good. All right, so who do you got next? 
Next on my list is Vivian Campbell versus Ronnie James Dio. Um, why don't you talk about about? I'm sure you know a little bit about that as well. So, from what I understand, um, basically, the uh, Vivian Campbell was on the first three albums for Dio. Um, you know, didn't really have a great contract with him, and didn't get a lot of the credit that he felt he deserved. Uh, really built up a, a, a I don't want to say hatred, but really ch- like did ha- hate the man by the tam- time he left the band. Um, so he leaves after three albums to pursue greener pastures, maybe find somewhere that he's appreciated more. And they s- slung mud at each other for years afterwards. Um, only kind of recently after Dio's death, did Vivian kind of come back and say, you know, I really regret things going the way they did, but he called him one of the vilest people in music. Uh, I mean, there's, it was nasty between the two. Oh yeah. I mean, it, if you ask Ronnie James Dio, he always talked about Vivian being a piece of shit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So it's one of those things that's weird because in the end, when it was over, Vivian wasn't fired by Ronnie. Vivian Wendy is the one who fired Wendy uh, Dio, yeah, and she fired him because he was asking for as much money as Ronnie. When you break it down, where what kind of money are we talking about? Are we talking about the band money? Are we talking songwriting credits? You know that that's to me. You know, I I don't know how they broke it down. I don't I don't have any idea of their music business dealings. But if when you're in a band, typically. The four guys or five guys or six or nine, whatever it is, share certain things equally. You know, the the record sales are equal. Where things become unequal is in the percentages that are given out on songwriting credits. Because you can literally say, okay, hey, like for you and I, you and I write a song. I wrote all the music. Right. Okay. And then you and I sat together and wrote the lyrics. You wrote 50% of the lyrics. I wrote 50% of the lyrics. I could literally go to the publishing house that's going to publish our, our music and I say, I get 75% of the songwriting. Chris will only get 25%. You're going to look at me and say, well, why the hell am I only going to get 25%? I, I, I did half the song. And I'll turn around and say, well, you know, because I'm an asshole. <laughs> I say, <laughs> no, dude. We're I really upfront ha- about this in our band. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote the music. You only wrote half the lyrics. So that's that's only 25% of the song. So that that's how things get broken down. Some people but say, But I'm oh, the saxophone you- player. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like, I forgot who it was um, wrote. Some some somebody wrote one line to a song. I think it was a Tom Petty song, either Tom Petty or John Mellencamp. I can't remember. Wrote one line to a song, and the artist Tom or John said, "You know what? I'm going to go ahead and give you credit on on the song." So th- when you see the, the the credit, you know, let's say it's Tom Petty, you'll see it by uh, Petty Campbell because Campbell, uh, I can't remember. Mike Campbell's his, his guitar player. Let's say it'd be Petty Campbell and Smith. Smith being the the guy who wrote the one line. Okay. Okay. Now, 
when when Tom presents that song to the publishers, he can sit there and say, okay, well, you know what, me and me and Mike wrote it, so we're going to do ninety percent, forty five, forty five, right? And this and we're going to give this guy ten percent, right? Mm-hmm. They could do that, right? And the guy Smith, you know, he wrote one line. He's he's getting ten percent of a song is like you know, let's say free falling. That, that, that I mean, he's a dude set for life. But hell yeah, I would love ten percent of free fall. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> you know. But in some in some cases, Tom could have turned around and said, "All right, me, Mike, and me, Mike, and Smith, we're going to get thirty thirty three percent each, or thirty three and a third. And you know, the guy is no smarter or dumber for it, you know. But really cool part, you know, really cool on Tom's part to do something like that, and that's the way it can work. So in Dio's case, in Ronnie James Dio's case with Vivian. I have no idea what their what their financial dealings are, but for for Wendy to say, "Oh, well, Vivian wanted just as much as Ronnie." Are we talking the nightly gate? You know, uh, are we talking the songwriting? What are we talking about here? Uh, because I believe, in songwriting purposes, that Vivian probably did deserve a lot of the share because he's he's probably the riff guy. I mean, you know, look at the albums that followed after he left the band. They're not as good. They're not as good, period. Right. I mean, it's so, up to, it's subjective, of course, but the fact is the hits, the memorable tracks from, from Dio are on those first three albums. Oh, yeah, ex- absolutely. Hold on one second. I got to open up a beer here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I just felt like I needed a beer. That's fair enough. Yeah. Um... You know, you're you're right. So Vivian obviously had an influence, and it's just a shame because after Vivian left, and you know, then you know, I think Jimmy had already left. I'm not sure. Jimmy Bain, you know, so the the band basically splintered apart. Vivian, uh, not Vivian, excuse me, Vinny Apice, uh left at some point there. I think after the second album. Or maybe a third. I don't remember which one it was. But basically the band splintered apart and then Vivian left. You know, it was unfortunate that they were not able to resolve their issues before Ronnie passed away. And now Vivian has created the band Last in Line that is basically, um, I don't want to call it rehashing. That's not the term. Um, Is uh, reviving the the first two, three albums. Yeah, I mean, that's his right to play them as he was, you know, a, a main songwriter on those albums, you know, and it's the same way, like this is going to be a debate for a while because, uh, people are going to bring it up as it's new information, but, uh, Pantera's to having their, uh, quote unquote reunion. And there are fans that are upset because it's not the original band. Obviously it can't be, um, and saying, well, that's not Pantera if it's, you know, if it's two other guys. But the fact is, these these are songs that aren't getting played anymore. And this is an opportunity to hear them played. And the music lives on in that way. This isn't them trying to replace anything. So if Vivian's going out there and playing that music, this is an opportunity for those those songs to live on. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's a... I'm trying to think of the word. I, I can't. It's um. It's a celebration. That's a good of, way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a celebration of the music because we all. I mean, if every person you talk to, every person you talk to that that's in metal and hard rock, and I, I say hard rock because 
as much as people don't want to believe this, Dimebag was friends with everybody. And that did not necessarily mean only the metal community. Okay. He was really good friends. And people are going to laugh at this. He was really good friends with Nickelback. Okay. With Chad Kroger, his brother, and the rest of the band. Yeah. And to the point where when they put out their their album for all the uh, right reasons i think it was called um they they had a song that was dedicated and it was written about the incident that happened with Dimebag and the and the shooting and <laughs> they said hey Vinny, do you have a guitar solo that we could put on this song and Vinny whipped out three four five different solos and he said here you can pick one and here you go and that was the way they were. They were generous beyond belief. And it continued to, to the day that Vinny died. And, you know, and it wasn't just metal guitar players. I mean, tons of tons of guitar players were influenced by Dimebag and they were friends with Dime. That was that was the other thing. They were friends. There wasn't a person that that was not friends with Dime. He made you an instant friend, and that's that was always the cool thing that I read about Dimebag. Yeah. So whoever is complaining about this celebration with Pantera, the fact that you're going to have Phil Anselmo and Rex Brown share a stage, and then they're going to bring Zach Wild and Charlie Benante who are two huge Pantera fans and they were huge friends of the band. Come on. I mean, that is going to be an amazing night. It'll be a lot of fun because I will be there. (laughs) That's right. So anyhow, um, to, to round out the Vivian Campbell and Ronnie James Dio thing, um, it was unfortunate that they that they didn't get to resolve their issues. Um, Vivian, with the last line, is is doing a celebration, and for a while it was Jimmy Bain, Vivian Campbell, Vinnie Appice, and it had Andrew Freeman as a singer. And since then, unfortunately, Jimmy Bain passed away. But they do they did continue the band. Uh, Phil Susan is the bass player, um, formerly of the Aussie band, uh, now so. And Andrew is still, I believe, is still the singer. So they're coming out, I think, with their third album or an EP any day now. So that's going to be, that's pretty cool. So um, next on the list that I have here, Kerry King and Rob Flynn from Machine Head. Now, this is a funny one, in my opinion. It was bizarre. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I I mean, I've been aware of that one for a long time. But you know the funny thing? Okay, so to, to the backstory, Kerry King has basically called out Rob Flynn uh, for basically being a sellout and helping move forward the, the, the rap metal movement. Um, I mean, he, he I, said they were responsible for rap metal. Like, they, co- they created it, which wasn't true. That, no, it wasn't true. And here's the thing that really annoys me about that, because... Kerry King of all people is in this particular case is being so hypocritical. It's not even funny. The man goes and does a video. Yes, they're label mates, but because they're they're uh, the president of their label was at the time was in, in Def Jam was Rick Rubin. They're label mates with Beastie Boys, and Kerry King goes and plays a guitar solo, records a guitar solo. For Beastie Boys' first album, License to Ill, he does the solo on No Sleep Till Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and then appears in their video. Okay, now 
the Beastie Boys, you know, didn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily a, a rap metal song. It was their way, you know, the, the way that they combined a lot of riffs and stuff like that made it a, a heavier song. But, you know, it wasn't like Rage Against the Machine. It wasn't like, you know, uh, and I, I got to bring this up again in the same story, Sum 41. It wasn't like, um, what's that? What's the band that, that the, most of the members from Fozzie used to be in? Oh, Stuck Mojo. Stuck Mojo. It wasn't like Stuck Mojo. So, you know, for Kerry King to turn around and say that, that, uh, that, that Rob Flynn and, and Machine Head, you know, who, who basically did sound like those other bands, like Stuck Mojo when they, when they did Supercharger and, and a subsequent album, just to sit there and say, well, why, why is he getting on their case when he was a proponent of bands like the Beastie Boys and Sum 41 and shit like that? You know? I, I don't get it. I mean, okay. You're a hypocrite. In 2001, what album did Slayer put out? Their new metal album. <laughs> yeah. God hates us all. I, I've expressed many times how much I hate that album. They have God hates us all. The uh, two, three years before that, they had Diabolus and Musica. They were floundering at this time. Now, a lot of people will say God hates us all. Put them back on track. I 100% disagree. You know, it did have, I think it was Grammy. Uh, award nominated at one point um but like Pfft, that means anything yeah i know it doesn't mean a damn thing <laughs> but you know this was this was past the 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 heyday of of slayer you know they to, in my eyes in a lot of ways they came back with christ illusion but i think carrie king was a little bitter at this time and i don't know what beef he had that he was misdirecting or or saying these things, but they weren't true. And uh, you know, eventually they did solve whatever problems they had. They've they've made up since. Uh, I think it was just a few years later. Uh, but but like some of the stuff he said were nasty. Yeah, it was more recently because it, apparently, like Rob Flynn in two thousand four tried to. They toured with Slayer and they did this big festival. And they tried to, uh, Rob tried to, you know, uh, put it to bed with him and Carrie, and Carrie totally blew him off. So it pissed it pissed off Rob, and and you know it kept it basically kept everything going. But yeah, it made no sense. But they did make up, you know. Uh, I guess it was in the 2010s, sometime around there, in the 20 teens, you know. And good because you know we don't need people mudslinging like that it's been said it was it was the hatchet was buried in 2007 so oh that'd be yeah it it was a brief amount of time but like somebody that's your your friend all of a sudden to just give like it was a a long interview you can find it online he he goes off and every time they change the subject he goes back to machine head (laughs) he was mad about something i mean look i I get it because, you know, if you think about listening to Machine Head's first album and there's, you know, the song Davidian is great, you know, and and they literally just changed virtually overnight to this band that was trying to be rap metal. I get it, but they weren't the first. 
Absolutely not. No. You know, and it, they they definitely weren't the best at it either. <laughs> but they have, you know, I've seen them Machine live Head. before. Um, <laughs> not on purpose. They were opening for somebody that I was going to see. So, so were they good? Were they rapping? What was eh, the deal? It was all right. I saw them. I want to say, and I could be confused because I went to so many concerts in that one year. Um, but I want to say they were opening for uh, Death Clock. Mm. And it was Machine okay. Head and um, with Bobby Blitz. Overkill. I know those two were together, but I can't remember if it was the Death Clock concert or if it was somebody else. Okay. But they weren't bad. Um the second time we saw Overkill, or I, the one I saw them with you, was much better. But Machine Head didn't do a lot for me. They didn't, they weren't bad, but they just weren't my thing. Right, and I get it. Machine Head just has the, has had their ups and downs, and even recently, some of the music that they put out wasn't necessarily uh, thrash based or very very heavy metal based. It was just different, and I'm like. That's Rob. That's Rob showing his influences basically because he doesn't really have. Uh, he has his obviously his metal influences, but he's one of these guys who's taken it all in and tries to use it all, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. All right, so our next one is Sammy Hagar versus David Lee Roth, and I'm going to let you take this one because I know you know a lot about it. I would say it goes even further. It would be Van Halen versus Sammy Hagar, or Van Halen versus David Lee Roth versus Sammy Hagar versus Van Halen. <laughs> Van Halen versus their singers. Van Halen versus Van Halen. Um, so, so, yeah, um, obviously in in 1980, was it five, that uh, – David Lee Roth left? Dave left in 85, yeah. Yeah, and Sammy joined in 86. So David left the band because, one, he wanted to maintain that rock and roll sound, and he was not liking what was going on with the synths that Eddie was adding into the band. Um, I think they had a lot of other issues that just continued all through the, the their entire career. Um, they can try to pinpoint it to one thing or this or that, but they always kind of had some conflicting opinions and, and attitudes towards each other. And that's just, that's been well documented in multiple sources. So he leaves the band. Um, they're looking for a new singer. Uh, Sammy Hagar happens to have the same mechanic as Eddie. They join up together. And from that point on, there was just heat between the two. Um, you know, up until right before he left, David Lee Roth was still doing interviews. He was going on late night shows, etc., saying, oh, no, there's no problems between us. You know, we're getting ready to record our next album, this and that. Um, and then just all of a sudden he's out of the band. He's gone. Um, but takes everything in stride, releases his albums. Um, he releases his debut album, Eat Him and Smile. Uh, by that point, uh, Van Halen's on their second album. They come back with OU812. You know, very obvious, deliberate heat between the two camps. Um, this continues on for many years until uh, Sammy leaves the band. They break up after balance. Um, 
and then David comes or is brought back on for the MTV Awards. What was it? What year was that? Ooh, that was golly. That was late mid nineties. I thought it is. Um, so David comes back for the 1996 MTV uh, Video Music Awards, and it just blows the mind of the people. Uh, now we have a guy named Mitch Malloy who's claiming he was the singer uh, briefly after auditioning, and then that was all put to bed uh, when when David came back into the band. Uh, but that wasn't actually a true reunion. It was really intended to be just a brief uh, publicity stunt from from the Van Halen camp. At least that's what they say. I don't think that's true. I don't know why you would bring the guy on just to record a couple songs and release a greatest hits album. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, but who knows? Again, like we said at the top of this, there's attitudes and egos that come into play in all of these things. So um, then not too long after that, uh, they they have their reunion with, or not reunion, but they bring on a new singer in Gary Sharon. They, I think it was during this time that Sammy and David had a a tour together. It actually, it was a little bit after that, wasn't it? That they they toured together. They did the Sands Halen tour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't remember what year that was. Um, let me see that. I want to say it was it was two thousand two, if I remember correctly. So they go on tour together the whole time. They're beefing. Like, it was all business in that they were making money going on this tour together, but they were shit-talking each other the whole time. Especially coming from Sammy Hagar in public, because apparently a lot of this stuff was happening behind the scenes, and, you know, certain people can't keep their mouth shut. So, then they have a reunion with Sammy Hagar, again... There's a lot of shit talking all through this whole time. These two guys can never see eye to eye, have said so many bad things about each other. And then eventually, in what is it, 2006, they reunite with uh, David Lee Roth, bring on Wolfgang Van Halen. That creates a feud between Michael Anthony and Van Halen, even though it's really one sided because all that Michael ever wanted to do was just play music. Really never said anything bad about the other guys. Just very disappointed for getting kicked out of the band. So, you talk about animosity issues in in a band. Van Halen has them. Van Halen, you know, um, everyone's going to sit there and say how you're you're talking bad about the dead. Not at all. Okay, let's let's put let's put it all the cards on the table. Eddie Van Halen had a drug problem. Eddie Van Halen had an alcohol problem. Okay? This is not a secret. This is not something that was hidden in the corner. This is well known throughout the industry. Okay? And the bottom line is that a lot of what happened between Eddie and Dave, Eddie and Sam, Eddie and Mike... Guess where it all centers around? Alex. Eddie. (laughs) Okay. It centers around Eddie. Eddie was the one 
who allowed his personal demons to influence his decision making when it came to how he dealt with the band. And that's unfortunate because while Dave himself probably put him back himself into a corner and there was no other option but to fire him at that point. Okay. The whole thing with Sam was, was basically should never have, have happened in the, and the band itself as Sammy and, and Alex and Eddie and Michael should never have broken up. So, you know, but it becomes a thing of, you know, if, if let's say Eddie's having a financial issue and the money's not coming in that way, or, or there's not enough money coming in to to satisfy whatever personal issues he's got going on, and someone says, "Man, if you get David Lee Roth back in the band, you guys will be selling millions of records. You'll be selling millions of tickets for concerts." You know, and you know the dollar signs go off, and you know, Sammy might say, "Hey, let's take a break," and Eddie might say, "No, I don't want to take a break." Well, now all of a sudden, Sammy's out of the band. You know, things like that, or those are the kinds of things that would cause an argument that eventually would lead to, you know, all the breakups that they had. And it's unfortunate because I believe that Sammy would probably still be in Van Halen today if, if, you know, or up till Eddie's death had this not happened. But again, we don't know the, the truth because... Like Valerie said, if it wasn't for the fact that Eddie wanted to play with Wolfie, you know, we would we wouldn't have had any Van Halen at all for, for in, in the early two thousands or or late two two thousand tens or whatever it was. So it, there's all sorts of different things, but it, it all centers around Eddie, and that's that's unfortunate. Now on the flip side, Sammy and Dave, you know, Sammy, I was just re- I was just watching an interview just a few few minutes before we started taping where Sammy said, Hey, before I joined Van Halen, I talked all sorts of shit about David Lee Roth. I talked the worst shit about David Lee Roth. But when I joined the band, I stopped because I tried to play nice. After I left the band, I tried to play nice. And then when we did this tour in 2002, is uh, what I read that they did. They, they finally got together. David, you know, was, was trying to basically big time Sammy, you know, and that's that's Sammy's like, you know what, fuck this shit. <laughs> I'm not holding anything exactly. back anymore. I mean, I, there was a lot of attitude as this is the guy that replaced me, and he tr- he did try to play nice, but it reaches a point where you can't play nice anymore. You just you have right, to stand exactly. up for yourself. You have to say what you want to say, and and it's just David Lee Roth has never been known for holding his tongue. Oh, no, not at all. But the thing is, is that he freaking talks in circles. Okay, <laughs> what are you talking I mean, about, man? <laughs> let's get it. Let's get it. I didn't. I used to. I used to do an imitation of David Lee Roth, and you know, back in the 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 eighties, he was a fucking nut job. <laughs> I mean, he he really was. You know, I, I look. One of my the favorite things that I've ever heard him say is, you know, sometimes you just gotta say what the fuck. At the, that's awesome because I say that all the time, <laughs> you know? and and that's become obviously in the in the internet age, WTF? What the fuck has become a standard, you know? But he's been saying it for years. David is a nut. We all know that, and he talks in riddles. 
and that in and as Sammy Hagar has stated in that same interview I was reading, I was listening to, he he is not the same person behind the scenes as he is in front of the crowd. You know, and I I, I understand that everybody he's a showman. If you're in front, you, you you act a certain way, but he says that he is a completely different person from what you see on TV, what you see in videos, what you see on interviews. He is not that person. You know, and maybe that's why he is or has been in and out of Van Halen so many times. Who knows? But I, I'm pretty sure it, you know, with Dave's giant ego, Eddie's giant ego, Sammy is down to earth as he is. I'm pretty sure he has a little bit of an ego oh, too. Oh, for sure. Everybody, everybody has an ego, right? That's, that's what makes right. us human. Exactly. And, but some people can control it better and some people can defer better than others. Absolutely. So, like, you know, like, like Michael just defers. He just wants to play bass. <laughs> <laughs> if, if only he and, uh, what's his name from, um, Quiet Riot could form a band together. Bassist Rudy, Rudy Sarzo. Sarzo. If only there they could be a band of basses, just guys that just want to play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rudy plays with anybody. All right. Um, next up on the list. Um, so this is where things go a little sideways. Um, this is... Um, it was I saw it in one place called... Burzum versus Mayhem, but in reality, it's Varg Vigernus, or Vickernus versus Euronymous. And we're going to go with Euronymous's nickname because I don't know what his real name is and it's probably too hard to pronounce. <laughs> so, why am I blanking on true, what it is? Um, <laughs> true, it's Oystein. Oystein, like yeah. Um, Arseth. Oystein Arseth. Yeah, see, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Euronymous, <laughs> there you go. Um, Varg Vickernus, who is the mastermind behind Burzum, if you want to put it like that, and Euronymous is the mastermind behind Mayhem. Uh, those are, or actually, let's put it this way: Mayhem is considered true Norwegian black metal. We have not talked a lot about that, but you and I have had discussions about doing an episode on that, and a couple of fans of ours have requested that and we're working on it put it that way but for tonight our little touch on that is just kind of a brief overview of what happened um for varg to kill euronymous so basically the the black metal scene started in norway kind of centered around uh mayhem or uh, what was it uh hell helveta the the record store the record so, store yes you know they took a lot of influences from uh you know bands like venom and some of these other bands that were kind of surfacing at the time and created their own style of music this true norwegian black metal really rejecting all of the uh decadence of say death metal and some of the other stuff at the time and really trying to make it as simplified and as brutal as possible, you know, no guitar solos. I mean, there were solos and stuff like that in early stuff, but it was, you know, it was developing at the time and it was more about like just really fast paced, uh, guitar riffs and drums and, um, and like just guttural deep 
creepy vocals. So all this stuff was developing as Mayhem was kind of getting big. Uh, there was a guy named you mentioned Varg Vikernis, who also was known as Count Grishnok. Um, he formed a band uh, called Burzum, and they, he, I guess technically, released his album before uh, the first official album release of Mayhem. Actually did a couple before. Um, they, they were intrinsically tied together uh, to the point that Varg actually did join mayhem at one point but there was a extreme rivalry between the two and it was it was kind of for vying for kind of leadership of this position within the black metal scene you know always kind of one-upping to the point that there was a lot of really horrible stuff happening like church burnings um there was guys in the scene that were murderers that were you know killing there was there was you know gay bashing etc stuff like that so there was it was a kind of a dark time for the scene in that that period um but you know it's it's kind of contained within a few years you don't even realize it it's like a 10-year period where there was this really nasty scene that was that was happening um so Apparently, it escalated between the two to such a point that the rumor is that Euronymous planned to kill Varg. So, Varg went over there to confront him, quote-unquote, and in self-defense, stabbed the guy to death 23 times. Self-defense. Um, 23 times. He was really coming after him, so... Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's undetermined because there's not video of it, etc. Uh, the only witness was not actually on the scene. It was one of their mutual friends named Blackthorn who was in the car. He had driven Varg miles and miles to come to Oystein's house. And, you know, it's, it's a really... It, it created in the black metal scene some true classics of the genre. It's not really my thing. I don't think you really care too much for that kind of stuff at, as well. But if you listen to, like, say, the first Mayhem album, which was uh, uh, Demysterious Dom Satanis, uh, that was... It, it it's 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 a classic when you really listen to it in the genre of of black metal it it's got a lot of really interesting ideas going on it's it's something that really can't be replicated in a lot of ways because you have a murderer and the 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 victim on the same album you have Varg playing bass and you have Euronymous playing guitar so it it has this like landmark status in the genre for a lot of good and bad reasons. It's it's a very unique and strange story all at once. Um, it, you know, not to get too deep into into to Varg and, and and all the stuff that's happened. I mean, Varg went to jail. Varg has been considered um, 
up to a certain point, and I would still say he's probably that way. He has been considered, you know, what what they call it, neo-Nazi, uh, Aryan, white supremacist, or however you want to call it. Um, he he denies those claims nowadays, but uh, you know who knows. Uh, he does his own thing out there in Norway. I, actually, I believe um, he's living in France now. Oh, is he in France? So, the, I mean, this is, you know, we're talking about rivalries and, and, and feuds. You know, you're, you're talking about one guy who probably was obviously jealous that someone so Euronymous was getting more and more popular. The band Mayhem was getting popular. The guy was in the band. It's not like he wasn't. Okay, so what's what's you know what's his problem? So he wants to become more of the leader, and from the understanding that you know, because I saw I saw the movie. I think you saw the same movie, the one with um, uh, Macaulay Culkin's brother who played uh, Euronymous. Yeah, I mean, um, I saw it. It's not a hundred percent accurate. There's a lot of things. No, but but what I'm trying to get at with that is that the 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 way they dis- they they show it or depict. Euronymous, he was basically this person, and even Vargas said it now, he wasn't necessarily exactly what he presented himself to be in public, okay? And that happens to everybody, okay? You know what? The guy the guy is just, you know, they, they, they have an image. I mean, most of these guys that wear the corpse paint are, are not Satanists. Venom is you know they not that they were corpse paint but venom they were they made all these albums and they were they're not satanists they're just that's just show that's their shtick okay and th- that apparently was what Euronymous' shtick was Euronymous' shtick <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's apparently what Euronymous's shtick was is that you know he put the corpse paint on and he was going to be this guy who you know was basically like a, a dead person playing music. Well, for Varg, it was a little more serious than that. Varg thought Euronymous was a poser. And, you know, the jealousy led to more and more. And the whole idea of Varg going over to the apartment, originally, Euronymous inviting him over was to sign a contract to end the, 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 um, the, the contractual obligation, I guess, of the band or the record company or some shit like that. You know? And... In the end, one thought, you know, he was he was get, there to get killed, so he decided I'm going to kill him first before he kills me, and it's unfortunate, but that that was a very dark time. And when we talk about, you know, he was getting bigger and bigger, and more and more famous. It's within a very small, tight circle in Norway. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't absolutely across Europe yet because he didn't have an album out. No, but but that's the thing. Like within that community, look when you're getting lauded all the time you're getting all this praise you're gonna start to grow an ego and that's what was happening was these guys were growing such an ego and and they thought they couldn't do any wrong they weren't getting caught for their crimes their people were afraid of them and that's what happens like when you when you it goes unchecked people start to do things that they wouldn't normally do Exactly. Yeah, the, the the church burnings was just a ridiculous. Uh, a um, what's the word I'm trying to use with that? It was a ridiculous, ridiculous. It was a ridiculous side effect, basically, of of all this uh, stupidity and jealousy going back and forth. 
But that we are definitely going to work on a, on an episode talking about true Norwegian black metal, this particular incident, as well as the formation of Mayhem and, and the bands that came afterward. So it's coming, just not tomorrow. <laughs> okay, <laughs> next, let's, let's lighten this up a little bit. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about Sully Erna from Godsmack versus Nikki Six from Motley Crue. It seems as though Nikki Six and Motley Crue in general seem to be on the the, uh, the seem to cause a lot of issues with a lot of other bands. In this particular case, uh, Sully and Godsmack toured with Motley Crue um, on Crew Fest Two. I believe this was, I want to say, two thousand six, two thousand two thousand nine. So I want to say, yeah. So in two thousand nine. And Crew Fest 2, the second Crew Fest. And Sully did an interview. He was asked how the tour went. And he basically turned around and said, Man, you know, there are a lot of people who cause a lot of drama. That's the nutshell of the interview. But we're talking about he was opening up where they were playing with Motley Crue. Bottom line is, is that Motley Crue themselves cause a lot of drama. We all know that. So, you know, what, what they were doing, I don't know. What they did to him, they big-timed him. They tried to say, that you know, that, that for whatever, that they, that they were rock stars. And, and, you know, Godsmack and Sully, just they weren't used to that. They were, they were used to more professionalism, if you want to put it that way. And so, in the end... Talking about professionalism, <laughs> Sully turns around and writes a song called Crying Like a Bitch that was basically uh, a pointed gesture at Nikki Six. I did not know that. Uh, I kind of like that song. <laughs> I, I kind of like that song. Yeah, it's a good song, Crying Like a Bitch. It's off of their Oracle album, I believe. Um, actually, it was a single before the album came out, and then they added it to the album later on, like on like a second, like a re, uh, the reissue, you know how they always do a deluxe version later on nowadays? That's 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 what happened with okay. that one. Um yeah, I know you're not a big Godsmack fan, but this is this is a pretty funny story just because, you know, we all know how Motley Crue is and we all know that, you know, they they're, they're the first ones to throw a punch because they, they love to fight. But they're also the first one to defend themselves when someone picks on them. And I get it, you know. Uh, we were just talking about them recently getting uh, into a war of words because of something that someone said about Nikki Six again. So in this particular case, I, I think a lot of a lot of times, and I'm reading, I'm, I'm currently listening to Paul Stanley's uh, book about his life. And... From what I'm gathering from a lot of these bands, it's the road crew. The road crew is one of the sh- the, the the strongest bonds that you have with with your in your band. It may not be the you know the four guys, five guys, or six guys that are in your band, but those guys in the road crew will die for you. They will go to jail for you. They will, in some cases, they might even kill for you. Okay, and Every band, every band's road crew is notorious for being defensive of their band. Molly Crew is no different. Kiss is no different. You know, Iron Maiden has the Killers crew. 
Um, you know, Metallica's had their crew forever. So this is a, a normal thing. And obviously Motley Crue's band, you know, or Motley Crue's crew. The crew crew? Will, the crew crew. <laughs> <laughs> they, you know, they, they're going to try and do everything, you know, that's going to favor their band. And, but sometimes, you know, you just have to do it with a little bit more professionalism and it, and it doesn't always work out that way and, and drama happens. I get it. But yeah, Sully and Nikki Six went at it, you know, and crying like a bitch was the end result. I thought it was a pretty cool song. I don't know enough about this particular subject, to be honest. The thing is... I know Matt would would love to say something about this and probably tell me that I'm all wrong <laughs> about it, but I don't the, care. The thing is, like, we've seen Motley Crue get into fights with all kinds of different people. I mean, Tommy Lee's had his beefs. Nikki Six has had beef with so many people. And, uh, and um, singer... Um, Vince Neil. Vince Neil. And Vince Neil has had his beefs with just about everyone too. So I haven't seen Oh the current beef the current beef sorry to interrupt you. Current beef with Nikki Six is him and Eddie Vedder. Ah, uh, that's right. Yeah, I remember that now. Um so. <laughs> and it, you know. The only one I haven't really seen have too many crazy beefs is uh Mick Mars. I think he's t- too busy dealing with his own shit. Because <laughs> Mick well, Mick Mick has always just wanted to play guitar, yeah. and that we we understand. And we'll let Mick, and you know he's he's got enough to deal with in his health exactly. issues. I don't think he wants to start <laughs> fights with anybody. I still think he'd probably win. <laughs> some in some cases, yeah. Okay, so now our next one is going to be Kurt Cobain and Nirvana versus Axl Rose and Guns N' Roses. What do you know about that one? Um, basically, Nirvana said that like bands like uh, Guns N' Roses stand for everything they hate. You know, so that's that's a good way to start things, especially after Axel. I want to say wore Nirvana T-shirts. He said he loved the band. He promoted their album. You know, just saying like he he thought they were great. So it was kind of a slap in the face uh, then, then for Kurt Cobain to come by, back and say, well, we hate you. <laughs> you know you know what I find funny about these things? Like these guys, especially the grunge acts, and, and, and usually it's not even just the grunge acts. It's these new bands that nobody knows who they are and they always want to, they, they, they want to, they want to make a name for themselves. So they get in an interview and rather than playing nice, you know, someone says, well, what do you think about your comparisons? They, they think that you're, you know, you sound like so-and-so. And, then, you know, and the, the guy is going to come out, oh, well, yeah, you know, I've heard that too. But, you know, he's old. He's, you know, he's another generation. They just talk shit for talking shit, mm-hmm. right? And that's a lot of what happened in the 90s because, yes, it, the, the grunge movement, the Seattle movement was an anti-rock establishment type of movement and it's funny because as much as it was anti you know establishment or whatever it is you think about bands like Pearl Jam yes they're still technically trying to be anti-establishment but they've had to play nice with Ticketmaster otherwise they're never going to play concerts again um and they still they tour and they and they do these things and they do they do a lot of good things for their fans, but when you start playing, 
South by Southwest. You start playing private concerts. You start doing this, that, and the other thing. That that's all corporate greed. Yeah. Okay. You telling me that you're you're playing a private concert? You know, in in L.A. for for a certain company or for a certain person, you just got paid, and you're getting. And if you're doing these private concerts, you're getting paid a lot better than you would be if you were doing it with a promoter. So. All these bands that sit there and say, "Oh, you know, it's you know, we're anti-establishment." Yeah, at one point you may have been, but now you're part of the you're part of the machine. You know, and so that's what I laugh about, like Nirvana. You know, <laughs> that's kind of one of the be- reasons why Kurt offed himself is because he was <laughs> like, "I I can't stand this." Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's unfortunate, you know. But that was also, you know, sometimes some people in situations that are not necessarily uh, in, a, in a drug infested haze can handle things better, you know. So, and I, I'm, I'm probably sure that a lot of people are going to dislike me after to this, this episode because I'm talking well, shit about okay. dead people. But the, but the bottom line is it's true. I mean, I get what you're saying, but I think he he's one of those guys that was an artist. He really, like, the the definition of artist. You can take, like, a band like Kiss, and you could say, like, you know, yeah, they're successful, but are they artists in the same way? No, because they're trying to cater to a certain demographic, etc. But if you have somebody that stands for what they believe in and they put out exactly what they want and they don't care if you like it or not, there's a difference. And and that's one thing that's Absolutely. one thing that Kurt is or Kurt was. And so he he didn't care if you liked it or not. But that's where it becomes really difficult. You have guys like Lane Staley who they're they're gentle hearted. You know, to a degree, they're artists and when they get out there in the public and they have to listen to the record companies and they have to listen to this and that and they say, no, we're going to fight against it. There's only so much fight you have in you sometimes. And you have a guy like like Kurt Cobain, who I'm not the biggest Nirvana fan ever, but at the same time, I can really respect what they did because they stood behind what they believed in. And and that's the truth. You know, you don't see uh them coming back and doing reunion tours. They've done occasional shows where they reunite, you know, to to pay tribute and stuff like that. But it's not, it's not like they reformed Nirvana without Kurt Cobain, etc. No, I and I get that. I, I get that. And I and I I don't take anything away from Kurt's uh, ability, his songwriting ability behind his art. I get that they all have the art that they that that they stand mm-hmm. behind you know i just what angers me about a lot of these people and sometimes anger is strong words sometimes it's, it's also it saddens me like lane staley's situation saddens me kurt's situation angered me because he killed himself on purpose because for whatever reason, he couldn't take it, whatever it was, okay? And whatever led to that point, okay? Lane Staley just could not shake the addiction. So he, it wasn't suicide. It but was. But it was, you know, accidental death. It was, though, because he, he 
I mean, listen to the lyrics of all you, of his songs for the last few years. I mean, Nutshell describes him perfectly in that he just he'd rather be nowhere if if no i i I understand it and again that's also that's your art that's your 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 mind in a in a in a different state talking and it works but it it, it, i don't think it was on purpose so much as he kind of knew he couldn't shake the addiction because there were some songs that jerry wrote the lyrics about lane Mm -hmm. because he knew lane couldn't shake it and that was the crazy thing you know he knew lane couldn't shake it and he's writing these lyrics that basically were about the demise of his singer and that's crazy to think about yeah you know but and that that, that's what makes that sad it what 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 kurt cobain and and the axel rose thing is just it's just funny because you know Axel, you know, they show up at the MTV Video Music Awards in 1992, and you know, Kurt and, and Courtney just had their baby, and and so all of a sudden, you know, Courtney holds up Francis Bean and says, "Hey, Axel, this is, you're the Godfather," <laughs> you know, and, and Axel turns around and says, "Hey, Kurt, whatever you know, or whatever he called him, you know, keep your woman in line," and so of course, you know, that starts a whole. <laughs> heap of shit between the, the two bands you know and and it's funny because dave um not dave what's his um what was the bass player's name chris novoselic or novoselic he was someone man like like you you said something bad about his band and he was gonna fight he was dropping <laughs> he was throwing down yeah you know <laughs> and I, and that's what i like about him you know dave Grohl, on the other hand he's in the behind the drums like yo just let, let me let me play drums Right, <laughs> he would sit back and they they start taking his drums apart. Be like, fuck me, you know. Yeah, he had his own beef though with uh, <laughs> Courtney Love. <laughs> yeah, that 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 was post uh, post um, Kurt Cobain. All right, uh, let's see. We got a couple more here. Um, the Ramones. <laughs> the Ramones. All right, so they're not heavy metal. We all know that they're they're not even hard rock. They're punk, but we all love the Ramones. Everybody loves the Ramones. I mean. Motorhead There's so the many covers of the Kiss. Ramones in metal. I mean, Children <laughs> exactly. of Bottom did a cover. Uh, yeah, you said Motorhead. Like, so many. Motorhead. Kiss. Kiss oh, yeah. did a cover. So, yeah. Um, Joey Ramone versus Johnny Ramone. Here's the funny thing. They had this feud, and yet they were in the same band from beginning to end. That is the crazy thing to think about. They didn't like each other. They got they didn't get along, but shit, we're going to play together. <laughs> and they did. So why was it that they did not like each other, Chris? Um, so Joey Ramone was dating a woman. Uh, I want to say her name was Linda. And uh, then Johnny Ramone was dating her possibly while they were dating and uh, that was something that Joey never got over. And even to the day of his death, they never patched things up. Um, it was always a point of contention. Uh, Joey, I mean, Johnny did end up marrying her. And he just, he didn't like that. <laughs> you know, I, I, so many people fight about women. You know what? There's another chick down the street, dude. You know, really. 
That is true. <laughs> you know, I mean, put it this way. And, I, and again, not disparaging the dead, but Joey Ramone was not the best looking man in the world. Okay. But he was in a band. And if he wanted to, and he probably did, could have, probably did get laid almost every night by a different chick if he wanted to. But that's up to him, you know, if he wants to do that. Because, man, if you're in a band, girls love you for some reason. I don't know that personally, <laughs> your experience. It's unfortunate. <laughs> but they love you. I mean, you could you be dog fucking ugly. And chicks love you because you're in the band. And what's worse? Here, here we talk about the crew again. Not Motley Crew, but the road crew. Road crew, you could be dog ugly and the fucking chicks like you. Why? Because you're part of the road crew and it's it's the chick's way of getting past the road crew to get to the band. <laughs> That's the sad part about that. But that that doesn't happen anymore today in today's culture, right? That that was just a thing of the past. Bullshit. That happens. <laughs> <laughs> Shit happens all the no. time. It it's probably not as prevalent. You know, the, the promiscuity is probably, I think it's probably not. worse today, but anyway. <laughs> it, it, it depends <laughs> who the band is. So, because if it's all these old fart bands that are playing, you know, all the ones that that, that we like, <laughs> they got their families around, so that's not happening as much. But you talking about like what's that band um, that that supposedly gets compared to Zeppelin a lot? Oh, I, um, uh, Greta Van Fleet. Greta Van Fleet. Oh my God, I'm sure those guys are just left and right. You know. Well, um, what was and, and the what other- was funny was I went to see Steel Panther with a friend of mine a few years ago, and um, all the girls were trying to hook up with them, and they're all married, and they, you know, they're 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 like <laughs> trying to they they're take the wig wigs off, and you know they're trying to get to the bus without getting hassled, and <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> like no no no, we're good. By the way, uh, hopefully we're equally offending everybody tonight. <laughs> Between all the dead jokes and and uh, the the, the sex, sexual promiscuity, um, you know we don't want to leave anybody out. <laughs> all right, last but not least, we're going to talk about Kiss. Uh, let's see, Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons versus Ace Frehley and Peter Chris. Kiss versus X Kiss. Um, this is my area of expertise, and I know you you've read and heard about it Chris bottom line is is that from the beginning Paul and Gene were focused on becoming the biggest stars in the world put it that way Peter and Ace were part of that but uh, quickly into their fame uh, they succumbed to the uh, pressures and um, they liked drugs and alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> they liked drugs and alcohol. Yes, they they enjoyed a party. Um, and you know what's funny is that even with as, as focused and determined as Paul and Gene were, they liked to party too. But the way that Paul puts it was that he wasn't going to put anything into his body that was going to deter him or to basically influence him in a negative way. Or, or distract from his focus of becoming famous, and you know what? 
I, I, I don't blame him for that. Where someone like Peter, whose skills were already limited, and someone whose skills uh, for like like someone like Ace, whose skills were unlimited, those things just stunted them. I mean, just stopped them cold. I don't think Ace ever progressed past a certain point. It's unfortunate because Ace was an amazing guitar player. Peter was never that great of a drummer. He, I mean, put it this way: when Ringo Starr is better than you, you know you got issues. Okay, um, and Ringo Starr is not that bad of a drummer, but people always give him shit about being not the greatest look, drummer. Look, there's certain drummers that they don't go wild. They don't do all the fills. They don't do all that, but they are the heartbeat of the band. Right. So there's certain, there's certain drummers that, you know, you on a, a more elevated level, you look like a guy like Phil Rudd and Phil Rudd doesn't do all the crazy stuff, but he keeps the pace as good or better than anyone else in the business and sometimes way better you look at a song like uh let there be rock and you go holy crap this guy kept the, that same pace through the whole song it so mm-hmm. watch watch um the movie let there be rock and you'll see how a freaking amazing phil rudd is mm-hmm. well you know, but Peter Chris was not that. <laughs> let's, <laughs> Peter Chris was not. Let's that. address that. He, uh, yeah, he. Okay, so so bottom line is okay. Peter Chris, from the beginning of joining Kiss, was a negative. Almost a, put it this way, it was a negative influence. Okay, he was always always trying to quit the band and say, you know, trying trying to get his way to quit the band. He was he was basically, um. I forgot what the word is. I'm really having trouble with words tonight for some reason. But he he was definitely someone who was always kind of instigating a problem. Okay, Ace really didn't care. He just wanted to play guitar and get drunk. Okay, Paul and Gene had a focus. So immediately, you know, because Paul and Gene were so focused, you know, Peter, specifically Peter, took a lot of resentment towards that. You know what? Peter was along for the ride, and Peter made all the money because of their focus. So Peter really should shut the fuck up because if it wasn't for those two guys having the focus that they had, their Peter's career would have lasted two years in tops and be done. You know? So Peter's life, he, he, is, he is living a good lifestyle because of those two guys. So, you know, that that's my defense of KISS. Is KISS the best band in the world? No, they're not. But you know what? Every almost every single rock band today, Slayer, Metallica, Slipknot, Nickelback, they owe KISS a a a, a debt of gratitude for the bombastic shows that they put on in the 70s that allowed them to put those bombastic shows on in the eighties, nineties, two thousands, and today. That's my opinion. I mean, that's that's fair. I mean, they, they were they were well, uh, trailblazers, I guess is the way to put it. And they have a lot of songs that are extremely memorable um, throughout their entire career. I mean, I don't think you can look at one album and say, "Oh, maybe the Elder." But but like you, <laughs> you can look at most of their albums and say they have a hit on every album. 
right? So yeah. they're a band that has, even through their darkest times, like say when Gene wanted to leave and be uh, an actor, um, they've persisted. They've kept going. They're good and bad. And the, in order to do that, they had to replace the two of the original guys. And now the the you know for the last. 10, 15 years, those guys have said, you know, we deserve to be there up on stage. And that's just really not true. You know, they they had their reunion tour. It didn't work out. Nothing changed from where it was. Um, I am a I am a believer that they should have different characters than and I'm talking about Tommy Thayer and and um, uh, Eric Singer. They should have different characters, but that's more of like that's their personal thing. You know, they they obviously are the businessmen and they say we want the image of the original band, but we don't necessarily want those two original guys. And I can understand that, too. You know, I think I th- that I, it just hit me right now because, like I said, I, I'm, I'm listening to the book that Paul put together, um, basically chronicling his life. And he said when they fired Peter and they hired Eric that they – they had to have Eric in a different persona. They did not want to have him in the cat. They they, they, they said that was absolutely not going to happen. So to think about it now, to sit there and say, well, Eric Singer has to be the cat and Tommy has to be Space Ace. It, the reason, and I, and I think the reason why it happened this way is because once they reunited and put back the makeup what everybody wanted to see when the reunion happened was they wanted to see the space ace they wanted to see the star child they wanted to see the demon and they wanted mm-hmm. to see the cat man so they and they had to in some cases have eric sit in for for peter because peter either didn't show up for a show or couldn't do the show for one reason or another. And the same thing happened with Tommy was on hold backstage waiting to be ace. If ace didn't make the show or ace couldn't make the show. And so I think that's the reason why they continue to use those characters now. So I agree with you. I think they should have their own, but I see Uh, a hundred percent see why it's just more of a matter of if the, if they were putting out new music and the music was good, then they would be able to go on their own merits, but they can't because they have to play to the nostalgia factor. And that's just a fact. Like that's, that's the reason why twisted sister never put out new albums because they were just going on the nostalgia factor. Cause that's what drew the audiences. They, they did not see any reason to put out new albums. And I get that. Uh, and true, and and I think Motley Crue should stop trying to put out new music. <laughs> yes, because yes. it's freaking horrible. Um, but no, you know the thing though with 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 um with Paul and Gene and Peter and Ace is that you know the fans clamor to have this reunion. You know, it it was great. When I did, I want them to get reunited when I saw them in nineteen ninety six or ninety five when they reunited. Yeah, but I don't think I needed a whole tour. It was cool. I got to see the show, but I didn't think it needed to continue. I, like I really wanted 
kids to put that away and go back to being non-makeup and go back to being, you know, Eric Singer and Bruce Kulick. Now, Bruce Kulick ended up just doing his own thing and it probably would have been Tommy Thayer. And just do non-makeup kiss and do the reunion one time and that's it. Because it, it was for the fans, but now... You know, I get why they do the the, the, the costumes because now that th- this is who they are. But after you know, it was only six, literally six years, not, not barely six years. You know, from nineteen seventy four to nineteen eighty, and even at that point in nineteen eighty, they were so they were so disjointed that realistically, the band was not the same band since nineteen seventy seven. Okay, when you think about that. Peter didn't play anything on Dynasty except for one song, which is, was his song. Anton Fig played the drums. Anton Fig played all the drums on Unmasked. So Peter wasn't even a part of that. He was part of the video. And in the video that you see Peter in, he knew he was fired. He was already fired. He knew he was. that was his last day. <laughs> that's that's insane to think about but but paul but paul said he he knew it was his last day but he he probably didn't care because he was so freaking high on drugs so to me if you think about it it was it was literally a three-year period 74 to 77 that was it and that's what all the fans are clamoring for three years it was that big at that time like realistically yeah, it was, it it was, was a magic three years it, it hooked me in that's for sure yeah. it hooked me in but if they never like, I asked this question to Eddie Trunk, and he responded to me one time. On I, I asked him on a, on a tweet. I said, "Do you think if Eric Carr was alive today, would ha- would Kiss have reunited?" And I personally don't think they would have. And if they did, I think they would have stayed with Eric Carr and Fox. Yeah, but you know, everyone everyone would have wanted Peter. Peter, Peter, Peter. I I don't think and I, that they would have done that to Eric had he been alive and, and well. Because that was part of Eric's. Eric always had that in the back of his mind. That he was the second drummer. And that he was going to get fired. And that he was going to lose his gig. And then when Eric Singer showed up, he he was pissed off. He's like, no, I'm I'm... I'm doing this and he couldn't do it. He he was able to do the video and that was it. Um in nineteen ninety two or ninety one, excuse me. So, you know, I, I Eric said or Eric, um Eddie Trunk told me that he he says money talks and it probably would have been the the big deciding factor. And of course, it, it but I do I don't know. I, I think personally myself that it would not have happened without Eric Carr. So, who knows? All right. I think that 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 that's a, a wrap on all these feuds. What do you think? I mean, I think a lot of these guys need to grow up, but <laughs> but the fact is they a lot of these have created some amazing music and amazing moments, so it's it's really hard to say. It is. I mean, it, it without without the the burning desire to to want to outdo Metallica, we wouldn't have Megadeth. It's true. Okay. You know, uh, I don't think anything else was 
on that same kind of level of what we talked about tonight. I think a lot of the other stuff was just a bunch of freaking mudslinging and stupidity. Um, but yeah, I think that the most significant one that we that we were able to enjoy the most out of it between the the, the bitterness was was the Megadeth versus Metallica. All right, well, that brings us to our big four solo albums is what we're going to do tonight. And that one is a tricky one because it could be, is it solo like a Dio solo or is it solo like an Ozzy solo? Is it solo because you got fired or solo because you quit? Or just solo because the band disbanded and you decided to do your own thing? For the most part, I don't care one way or the other. What are your big four solo uh, solo albums for tonight? So a lot of times I do like deep cuts and and you know stuff that is kind of out, outside of the box. But I went as basic bitch as possible on this one. <laughs> um, basic bitch, huh? <laughs> so my number four is Resurrection from Halford. You know it's it's hard to pick something kind of outside of the box on this one because there there are certain groups that we grew up listening to etc that that just really like when they had their solo album there these were moments when you go oh my god you know and this is a good example where you know he did fight and I like fight a lot but but resurrection was a moment that just said like this is this is the Judas Priest Rob Halford he may be not in Judas Priest but th- he is he is back to being the metal god you know and this we talked about this on another episode this is a great album um then I've got number 3 is Holy Diver from Dio um you know he did Rainbow and then he joined Black Sabbath and then when he left Black Sabbath he created Dio and technically a band but this is his solo project and Dio continued on with a lot of different musicians without the same lineup so um, I would say it's more of a solo project Holy Diver is just one of those those albums that just from beginning to end it's fantastic Um, you know I, I loved what he did in Black Sabbath but there's something about his style and we mentioned earlier you know vivian campbell's guitar playing fantastic on this album uh my number two is blizzard of oz from ozzy uh you can't deny especially after two pretty weak albums from black sabbath to come back and you know create this masterpiece with randy rhodes um it's it's an incredible album and it's re- it's one that I've heard so many times in my life. I probably don't need to hear it again. And I could tell you every song and and probably sing the album myself. But um, it's it's just like I said, a masterpiece. And then my number one is from one of my favorite lead singers, uh, Bruce Dickinson's with Chemical Wedding. Um, I just you know of all of his solo albums. I think Chemical Wedding is the best one. We did an episode, uh, uh, Accident of Birth versus Chemical Wedding, did we not? Yes, we did. And and definitely listen to that one, but I guess you're getting my opinion here, too. Um, Chemical Wedding is just one of those albums from beginning to end I can listen to just over and over again throughout the years, and I don't get tired of it. 
and this again was one of those albums you know accident of birth i think is the the album that that said like bruce is back as a metal singer but chemical wedding took it to a whole nother level you are absolutely correct it did take it to another level um all right so we have one album to cross over but we have two artists maybe three if you want to look at it that way uh that are the same okay so, <laughs> um pretty interesting and i almost we almost matched all four <laughs> almost um so for me um picking some of these albums one of the one of the, the artists i'm gonna talk about next i didn't know which album i really really liked more but when i think about it it's just it kept, I kept going back to the first one, so I had to go with that one. So my number four is Ace Freely with the Ace Freely album from that he was in with. He was still in Kiss, but it's a solo album, uh, and it it triggered him to become more of a solo artist later on. So uh, that album is I love that album from front to back. Uh, it's a great album. It's got a lot of really cool songs on there. Um, number three for me is Bruce Dickinson's Chemical Wedding. Same as yours. That's your number one. Um, I love that album as a whole package. We talked about this as a whole package. I think that is, uh, is his best album, but my favorite song from him is on a different album. So that's a uh, unfortunate in this particular case. <laughs> it can be that way sometimes. Like you, it can be you, the, as the whole album. You have to look at it though. Yeah. Right, and and the same thing is going to go for my number two. Um, my number two is Ozzy Osbourne's Diary of a Madman. And I picked Diary because that was the first album I had from Ozzy. Okay. Bl- Blizzard happened to be the second one. But when I think, when I th- lay it all out and I think about the production, that's what really seals it for me. I love the first two songs, you know, Over the Mountain, Diary, uh, and, and then um, Flying High Again. And, you know, the the. F- the was it the think the third song is you can't kill rock and roll um so i really like that album then you flip it over and you get to sato and you go into diary of a madman little dolls opens up the second side and what i really like about little dolls is the 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 way the drums start off they have like this real this particular cadence and then all of a sudden it just rolls really hard i always thought that was a scratch in my record but that's just the way the song is um and then to end the album with Diary of a Madman, that's, like I said before, a couple of weeks ago, that song scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. But it's a masterpiece of a song from Randy. So when I look at that compared to Blizzard, yes, I, I Don't Know is my favorite song. Crazy Train is on there. Um, you know, Suicide Solution. But for whatever reason, I, I just like, as a whole, I like Diary of a Madman better. And I know it was a lot to explain a number two album from somebody, but that, that's really what I thought about it. And number one for me is is one of these albums that, man, I can listen to that from beginning to end and never get tired of it. Um, maybe skip one song if, I, if I'm not in the mood for it. And it's from Rob Halford. It's from Fight. It's War of Words. I love that album more than anything that Rob has put out. I love that album. So it's not Halford. It's not Resurrection, but it's Halford would fight. You like it more than anything Judas Priest put out? (sighs) 
maybe not screaming for vengeance, but I think I, 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 I no, even then because I don't know, man. It's just I love that album. Wow. I, 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 I really, really, really like that album. That like that, like that's one of my Desert Island albums. And Screaming for Vengeance is is one of my Desert Island albums. Like like White Snakes Slide It In is one of my Desert Island albums. So that's that that tells you that. <laughs> but I yeah, like I wouldn't it's good, but I wouldn't bring resurrection to me on the Desert Island. Not that I would complain if I got stuck with that album. I wouldn't complain. But that wouldn't be the the one I would search for when it came to Halford. It would probably be either Judas Priest, Vengeance, or um, Fight, War of Words. So there was and a, I prob- <laughs> oh, I'd probably lean towards Fight. Sorry. No, no, you're good. There, there was a joke Norm MacDonald told a long time ago. He says, uh, I was trapped on a desert island, and to be honest, the five favorite albums I brought didn't help a goddamn thing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what sucks about it is that you know that the battery's going to die eventually. So. <laughs> I just love his, his humor, but oh, anyway, Norm, Norm's humor was was definitely unique. I, I liked his style of, of humor. All right, well, that's our big four solo albums for this episode, and that is the end of the show for you. So as always, remember to like, subscribe, and download the show on your favorite podcast platform so you can take us anywhere you want and listen to us at any time. And don't forget you can interact with us by commenting on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can send us a DM as well. If you listen to us on YouTube, be sure to leave us a comment, or you can send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com. So remember to tune into the next episode where we spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe and always turn it up to 11. See ya.